Hello and welcome back to the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. Uh, this is an episode with a number I can't remember because I am bad at my job. 31. Uh, 31? Okay. Uh, this is episode 31 of the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. Uh, I'm your host for today, Nick Cummings, and I'm joined today by Spencer Tordoff. Hello. And Aaron Thayer. Uh, according to Nick, tonight I am close to 40 ounces of freedom, so I apologize in advance for any misspoken words. And I apologize for any sublime references that make it out into production. And I apologize because I think it's actually episode 30. Oh, well, episode 30 is good, too. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, it does not matter. So, we're recording this on December 6, 2013, which, uh, as many of you know, is a day... That has probably already happened by the time you've heard this, but it's also about a week out from when we, uh, as a collective Silicon Sasquatch staff group, meet to debate this year's releases and try to synthesize from all of our disparate points of view our collective official top 10 list for the year. We've done this, I think, four years running, or rather this will be the fourth year, and... Um, I'm looking forward to it, as I'm sure everybody else here is. It's kind of a grueling process. It usually takes about five hours to get through everything. Uh, friendships are ruined. People often end up getting a little drunk. It's a little bit not pretty, but it's a good process. It keeps us on our toes, and I feel like we always end up with a finished product that we're relatively proud of. It occasionally involves some Game of Thrones-style political maneuvering and or having yeah. someone stabbed. This year may very well be our red wedding. <laughs> it's it's possible, and we've had some really contentious years. Don't Google Red Wedding if you haven't read the books or mm. seen the most recent season of Game of Thrones. That is a, that is an important that is an important point. And also, whatever Nick, you do, do not stumble across it in the Game of Thrones wiki if you have a possible interest in the show, because that is why I don't watch it. Also, Nick, technically, oh, no. it is the fifth year this year. Is it our it fifth our, year? Yeah, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13. This is our fifth game of the year. Holy yeah, crap. Yeah, I know. Hot damn. Dude. Dude. I mean, I think... I remember 2008, we did our favorite moments, and I thought that was kind of, like, cool, but I didn't realize we kicked off in 2009. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, I Man. think I uh, started, like, in 2009, even though I wasn't a regular contributor uh, contributing to Game of the Year, which was a lot of fun, because, man... Like I said, we get very contentious. And how are your stock options now since you started? Oh, you know, I'm I'm rolling in it. Great. As soon as we make an IPO, I am going to be worth <laughs> upwards of five dollars. It's uh, actually initial pitiful offering. Is <laughs> for us. We basically take pay you to take stock. Yeah. <laughs> um, at the point we're at. Anyway, uh, optimism aside, uh, we want to talk about some of the games that while we, you know, we are. All preparing for, you know, taking our favorite games to the table next week to defend them and try and get them on the top 10 list. It's also pretty clear that due to rules around our process and just the fact that other people don't get it, man, uh, <laughs> not all our favorite games are going to make it into that discussion. And that means they have no chance of making it into the top 10 list. So in honor of that, um, we wanted to de dedicate this week's podcast to shedding a little light on and pouring one out for uh, those games that we love that for one reason or another won't be making it on to our game of the year list. Um, before we hop into that part, though, I wanted to share a little bit of context around two areas um, that would uh, two factors really that disqualify games from making it this year. Uh, the first is that uh, next gen games, which would be anything on PS4 or Xbox One, will not be in the running this year for the simple fact that nobody on the staff has those consoles. Because we know how to save money. Oh, yes. I wouldn't say that necessarily. No, we don't know how. But we don't <laughs> have Two of us have Wii U's. Yeah. Uh, we don't have them. I would not be surprised if by the end of next year, several of us do have them. Yeah. But it seems point, likely. It didn't work out. Uh, we hear that Dead Rising 3 is pretty okay. Some people like Killzone. Uh, that's great. I, it doesn't sound like, from my point of view, that any of those would have made our top 10 anyway. Right. If I will speak for uh, Spencer, who usually carries the PC Master Race torch around here, um, at work, which, to be vague on purpose, I have a uh, intimate uh, knowledge and experience with Xbox products, and uh, obviously the Xbox One as a result. He sleeps during with Steve Ballmer is the <laughs> takeaway here, but nevertheless. <laughs> I uh, During work today, I was watching a co-worker 
uh, experience Dead Rising 3. And I, I swear I could not help but looking at that game, my, my peripheral vision and going, Hey, that looks like a PC game on high settings and just going, well, fuck, what happened to me? Um, shouldn't I be impressed by this? But yeah, so none of us have next gen consoles. If that changes, you, if we did watching TV while on a Skype call on your TV would be our game of the year. Yeah. We're actually all Skyping from Xbox ones right now. Yeah, so that's that's our secret. Football. That's our dark secret. Yeah, my yeah. my fantasy team, dude, off the charts, bro. Dude, sick. Yeah, also, Peyton Manning also <laughs> is for, a football player. For all of those people who are watching, are rather listening is Jerry to this Rice podcast on a stereo in a room with an Xbox One. Xbox, turn off. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sure to intersperse more Xbox ons and Xbox being my little pony throughout all our future podcasts. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I'm not doing that. Anyway. No. Anyway, so that's one factor is that we don't have those new consoles. Uh, I don't think we're going to make any big mistakes by leaving those games out, but hindsight's always 2020, so we apologize for that oversight this year. The second factor is that we have some of the criteria around what defines a game released in 2013. And it kind of boils down to two exceptions. We don't allow mods, as in games that aren't really in their final iteration or stage of release, which is why, for example, the Stanley Parable will likely make it into our real discussion this year, even though the mod came out years before. The other thing is that we don't allow incomplete episodic games. So uh, let's say that The Wolf Among Us, Telltale's new episodic series, uh, was to be the best game of the year in the end. The Only the first episode, or maybe the second by now, is out at this point, so it's not a complete product, so we won't evaluate it. Um, I know Aaron's played the first episode, so he probably liked it. I'm, but I'm more upset about um, Kentucky Route Zero not being eligible. Yeah, because the game looks amazing. Yeah, I really need to play that. Me too. Uh, so if you guys are listening and you really like us... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> please send us copies. Uh so those are really the only factors. Did I miss anything, guys? Uh, there is one other, and that is no HD remakes. Yeah. Really no remakes of any kind. Re-releases. Uh, right. Re-releases are right out. Yeah. So that's it's unfortunate uh, in some ways we, you know, because there's such a degree of variation between different types of HD releases and re-releases, but um, it's the rule we have for now. We're going to stick to it so we can really highlight the newest and, um, most, I guess, innovative stuff. Consider instead. this podcast, the Island of Misfit games that by our stringent rules will not be eligible for game of the year. Yep. That's fair. Well, I don't want to delay us any further. So if you guys are ready, um, let's, uh, let's start talking about those games. And, uh, I thought it would be great to start off with one that we all have some experience with. Uh, but we've all kind of universally agreed we just aren't going to try and even bring up this year, and that's Battlefield 4. Which, by proxy, it should be, um, or proxy is not the right term, but by default should be eligible for Game of the Year, right? But why is it not, Spencer? I have been calling Battlefield 4 Battlefield (laughs) 3.5, and that is not a slight. Here's the thing. I loved Battlefield 3. I played a crazy amount of Battlefield 3. Honestly, if my brother is logged in, I still play it. Like, he's on a server, I just jump right on. I still have it installed. Battlefield 4 is not that much of a leap. It's just not that much of an improvement. It's very similar to Battlefield 3 in arguably most regards. And as a result, I dread trying to argue for it in Game of the Year. Partially because, is as I've been saying, it's so contentious, but partially because I don't think it really resembles Game of the Year material. I don't think it's a impressive enough game to, to warrant discussion. So when you say Game of the Year material, what, what kind of adjectives would you use for that? Well, let's see. Uh, we, we like innovation. We like something to be new and fresh and bring something to the table that hasn't necessarily been brought before, or it has to be Zelda in the case of Aaron. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. But Or Minecraft. Or Minecraft <laughs> in the case of you and me, though they won't let us bring that. That's the, that's the fourth rule of Just Game of the Year is no Minecraft, Minecraft yeah. because we already brought it up even though it's an alpha. And that's a reason we do not consider uh, alphas or betas, things that are in early release. Those are not permissible 
after the shit show that was us getting like a Minecraft Steam Greenlight, for instance, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, regardless of that, uh, it has to it has to bring something new to the table. It has to be something fresh, or I guess it can be a very impressive rendition of the the genre that it already exists in. Uh, and I mean, Battlefield Four does fit that, but not. It doesn't improve on its previous iteration enough to really be considered. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun to play, but it's just not that different. Yeah. My my thing with Battlefield, I totally agree with Spencer, is it can be a great game. It can be, in my opinion, the best uh, multiplayer shooter available right now. But I feel like Battlefield has become maybe not a negative um, connotation, but it's like an MMO. I'm paying Battlefield uh, for Battlefield 4 and for premium and the expansions that come out in sort of the way that's a constant, like a subscription to a, a multiplayer game, like something like World of Warcraft or whatever other example you want to use, that I know I'm going to buy it. I know I'm going to be paying for it. I'll play it. Oh, it adds some new things. But it's not wholly different than the core experience was two years ago or the year before or whatever your time frame is. It's Battlefield 4, I think, is better than 3 overall, so I'm glad about that. But it is not enough for us to, or at least me, add it to our Game of the Year discussion when we already put Battlefield 3 in our Game of the Year list uh, a couple years ago. Right. It's just that rather than $12 a month, you're paying effectively 120 every yeah. two years yeah but yeah i mean the, the moment i can afford uh <clears throat> premium i'm getting it because because i want to play it i, I want to play the expansions as they come out but yeah it's it's very much a kind of foregone conclusion and that's because dice has not been hollowed up Wow, I can't believe I'm going to say this. DICE has not yet been hollowed out and skull-fucked by EA <laughs> to a point where it's not recognizable. DICE still makes an amazingly fun game that EA puts some really stupid bullshit on, but it's still fun enough and enjoyable enough that you can overlook that. Yeah, I, it's amazing that a game with a mandatory origin install and the battle log feature Ugh, battle log is, is still terrible. fun. Yes, and so basically once the core team at DICE leaves, I'll stop buying... Uh, yeah, really, I'll stop buying uh, Battlefield. Yeah. Uh, not unlike what happened with Infinity Ward and Call of Duty, but DICE is still making a high-quality game. Yes. And so I'm still on board. I just, again, it's it's so iterative, it's not worth bringing up this year. It's, it's almost like a cable TV subscription. You begrudgingly keep paying it because you know you need to have access to some core entertainment function that you really value. And I guess that's basically Battlefield for me, and I put that in, in a uh, backlog a few weeks ago, that it doesn't matter. They could add two new fucking tanks and a new uh, skin for your player next year for Battlefield 5, which they're not going to do it yearly, but either way. And I will still buy it because it's new, it's going to add different things to the same formula, and I still value that experience Perhaps the way that a Call of Duty player does, but I'm better than them because Call of Duty sucks. So, <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, it really does. I played through most of Black Ops Two this year, and I can attest to the fact that the series sucks now. <laughs> you can not slam people, but Ghost in, is different in Call of Duty. Ghost, Ghost has a dog. Yeah, Ghost so. is way different, guys. Yeah, but again, slam mines, you guys. Yeah. So. I just want to say one thing about Battlefield 4, which is that I bought Battlefield 3 about two days before I got Battlefield 4, because it was in that EA Origin bundle. Right. Um, I played about 10 minutes of it. It looked okay. I can't tell the difference between that Battlefield 4, which I kind of got goaded into picking up because Aaron and Spencer were super gung-ho about it. Uh, I've played maybe five hours at this point, and I was a big Battlefield 2 fan and also a big Battlefield 1943 fan, which I think Aaron and I played a fair bit of on Xbox Live. Yeah. Uh, well, which... At least you're not one of those 2142 hipsters. I love 2142, but that game was broken. <laughs> that game was stupidly fun, it, it, but it yeah, was broken. It was. <laughs> um, any game where you get shot into the planet on a respawn, I'm okay with, though. Like, I'll give it a free pass. Because, like, 
It's hilarious. You're in this little pod. Anyway, point being, Battlefield 4, um, I haven't touched the campaign because I heard so many bad things about Battlefield 3's campaign, and honestly, I'm just sick of single-player shooter campaigns in general. But everyone, for the most part, is going to buy this game for the multiplayer. Yeah. They may want the campaign as a selling point or per perhaps to uh, garner some more critical acclaim from those people who look for it. But. Or to unlock the specific guns they tied P90. to the campaign. P90. Yeah, that's, yeah you have to finish 50. the campaign for the P90, which is a fuck show. But whatever, I've got the Ace 52, so fuck y'all. Yeah. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. They're guns. Guns and the mans. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, point being, um, it's a great game. But it reminds me of, like, it, it shows to me that this whole genre, at least this series, is moving much more towards, like, what you get with the NFL Sunday ticket or an NBA League Pass, yeah. where it's an annualized purchase for the people who really want to keep up with this thing on a regular basis. And, like, Spencer, I know you guys have an NBA uh, pass at your house. Which so. suppresses me because League Pass <laughs> is awful. Like, is it as bad as Battlelog, though? Ah, uh, that's a <laughs> difficult comparison. Because on the one hand, Battlelog sucks, but on the other hand... Uh, my household could not be into the Trailblazers if we tried, because all of their broadcasts are blocked. Best in the um, West, man. League Pass. But they're so good. Yeah. I would happily watch them. Like, I mean, I watch the Timberwolves right now, and the Timberwolves are high-level trolling, but they're also not a, like, they're, they're not a great team. Like, it's, it's kind of unfortunate. So, I would, I would watch the Trailblazers, but again, it's not an option yeah, because Rip of old City. media bullshit. Whereas, uh, Battlelog is an embodiment of new media bullshit where it's like, hey, let's make our game wa- launch through a web browser. I don't know. Dur, 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 and I don't know. Web some- 2.0 shoved so- down your throat. <laughs> I will not fully be against any sort of battle log or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, premium subscriptions when the idea of season passes will keep going. But when you buy the season pass, you get all the content at a slight discount because I'm such a um, deal hunter. I, I find that valid. Like, I'm okay with it. I know that they're screwing me over anyway. But <laughs> if I'm going to be buying all this stuff for a game I know I'm going to keep playing... Fuck it, I'll pay the $50 instead of the $70, you know? Yeah. Yeah, plus you get two weeks of early access for each yeah, one. Yeah, and special events for double XP and special unlocks and camo and customization. Oh, God. You guys, we've totally bought into the hype machine. I'm, unfortunately, I'm unfortunately, you get carbon fiber dog tags, which really just make me want to stab <laughs> myself in the throat. Like, it, uh, you know. Rest in peace, it's like Paul dog, Walker. Dog tags are bad enough, and I make them the stupidest ones I can. But then carbon fiber is like the douchiest material carbon in existence. Fiber. Yes, I said it. No, it it's is. It's awful. And rest in peace, Paul Walker. But carbon fiber just yes. needs to go away. <laughs> it's a miserable... Fuck you, fucking... Fast and the Furious, and Need for yeah. Speed Underground for making oh, that popular. Oh, God. Yeah, seriously. So, so next on our list... Next on our list is <laughs> Need for Speed Underground from 2003. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Driver 3, but... Um... Drive, drive Ear... Drive through. Drive through. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, the next one on our list, uh, if you guys are ready to move on. I am. Is uh, Nino Kuni, Wrath of the Right White Witch. <laughs> yeah. It's not a good title. I call it NNK3W because they just tried to. Madden NNK. <laughs> it's like worse than a Shin Megami Tensei title. It's like so many words and it's all Japanese. Yeah. If you didn't know by now, that is a Japanese game. Yeah, it's pretty damn Japanese. It's a collaboration between, is it Namco and Studio Ghibli? Uh, Namco Bandai, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So, Aaron, you played the most of this. I bought it on the pedigree of the Studio Ghibli uh, connection. What do you think about this game, and why is it not in the running? Well, my first uh, experience with Nino Kuni was um, buying it on the PlayStation Store at full price on release day. Uh, waiting an entire day because the PlayStation Network on the PlayStation 3 at least sucks uh, an entire day to download 20 gigs. So that was terrible. But once I got to it, I was charmed as I had expected to be by all of the um, pre-release coverage of the Studio Ghibli uh, animation. It, it definitely looks like a Miyazaki film come to life um, which was great, you know? I love those films, I love that anime style, and I was sold on that, so as far as visuals and aesthetic, perfect. Couldn't couldn't have asked for more for a Japanese RPG. Um, but when you get to the game, it's very simplistic, 
maybe not to a fault, but you're a boy who goes to another world, and then you find monsters, and it's then basically Japanese hardcore RPG Pokemon. And you collect monsters to then fight other monsters with, and you can level up your monsters, and they evolve. Like, I, I'd probably be being more dismissive about it than the biggest fan of Nino Kuni would be, but my end experience with that game was after hour 30 or so, when I was maybe like a fifth or two-thirds or, I don't know, some way through the quest, I realized I was just grinding to make my little monster characters stronger for no reason. Then I was immediately uh, transported back to the 90s of grinding in a bunch of JRPGs and realizing, wait, I'm not 10 years old. I don't have the fucking time to do this. Why am I doing this anymore? <laughs> so I stopped. I stopped playing it like four or five months ago and haven't gone back. Yeah. I mean, I played the first three hours or so because I, really I was really looking forward to it. It was on sale one day. And uh, I have a weird relationship with JRPGs at this point because... Like Aaron, um, I grew up playing a lot of these things, uh, you know, the Final Fantasy series to name just one, Earthbound, yeah. Chrono Trigger, etc. And like, they took a lot of time. There's no question. They were very long involved games with a bit of grinding. But when you were that age, uh, for me anyway, it was, a, it was so great. Like, yeah. you got so much out of that game. Um, and it's, for me, I could tell just from the little bit of the combat I saw that this game was going to be a, a grind. And, uh, I would love to go back to it at some point, but I feel like I've reached a point in my life where the time commitment just doesn't work like that for me. Like if it had, if it had been episodic or, uh, for example, on my Vita and geared towards, you know, that pick up and play mobile style, mm -hmm. it would have been a lot easier to stomach. Um, but at this point, I don't think I'm going to be able to get through it. I'd love to, but because it's, it's really gorgeous. It's a beautiful game, but. It's, uh, I, I guess it's not for me. So would you have played the 3DS version that came out that wasn't really tied to it, but it was kind of the same game? Maybe, but I really, I, I, <laughs> this is going to sound superficial and throw my, uh, uh, objectivity in a question, but I really just bought it because it looked really pretty. Yeah. It looked like, it looked like a Studio Ghibli movie. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, th whatever. I give you guys my money for everything else. Here's, here's <laughs> more. Um, speaking of which, that new movie from them looks really good. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I think I would love to see it on Vita mm -hmm. and just, you know, when I, when I start traveling some more, having that on an airplane would just be perfect. I, but I feel like it was a game that would have, it, it missed, I, I don't know. I think it's the point of it being released was to bring back some of that, um, magic of the JRPGs of the nineties, but yeah. it felt like it was a game that was misplaced. Uh, remember that summer of the square games with like vagrant story. Oh yeah. Legend of mana, yeah, Chrono Cross, exactly. Threads of fate that represent it would have fit in right with that era. Um, but now like I'm not 10 to 15 years old anymore. And as you said, it just, there's no time commitment for me to get the value out of it that I could have years ago when I had no prior adult commitments. And that, maybe that's why I sort of resent the game is it's making me face my adulthood and going, you know, bullshit, I can't do this anymore. I'd rather go play three matches at Battlefield 4 than spend five hours grinding to then get to the next level. Yeah. It's a shame. Like, I, maybe someday I'll go back and finish it, but, um, it's just, I think that we were just in a place where we couldn't really experience the game in the best way possible. Yeah. If this was a full-time job and we had to review it, that would be a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, speaking of JRPGs, uh, there was one this year that... Actually, honestly, this might be my favorite game I played all year. I know it's terrible because it's a game that came out last year that's an internal remake of a game that came out in 2008. <laughs> but uh, you guys know, and if you read the backlog this year, you know, I kind of went crazy for Persona 4 Golden. And uh, if I ran this site by myself and was just totally like a self-indulgent asshole, this would be our number one game of the year for like two years in a row. I'm going, um, to, I'm going to leap on this opportunity so we can talk about them at the same time. <laughs> uh, Baldur's Gate 2, absolutely the best game of 2001, would be at least in my top five every year if it was up to me. Okay. So this is why we don't consider remakes so, is basically what I'm so saying. So as a medium yeah. here, because I haven't played either. I played the Baldur's Gate 1 remake, 
but you know, I, I love that game. And I, I did play Baldur's Gate 2 when it came out. I haven't played Persona. So as a mediary here, what, Nick, makes Persona 4, in any iteration, the best game you could play? And then after that, Spencer, why is Baldur's Gate 2, as an HD remake, uh, the best game that you've played? Like, what what draws each of you to those games, respectively? Sure. Uh, a couple of things for me. One is just the structure of the game and how it plays out. Um, so I'm not your your biggest, you know, culture buff on Japan. I haven't watched any anime outside of a Studio Ghibli movie in, like, a long time. But there's something about a game that is, a, when, it, when it successfully, like, creates the pastiche of a lifestyle or an experience that you never had before that can be really compelling when done right. Like, Assassin's Creed, as a series, at its best is uh, when it's doing this, when it's transporting you to ancient cities and, like, giving you historical context for them and letting you kind of, like, poke around and see what that's like. Persona lets you be a teenager in a rural Japanese town. Mm-hmm. And that's something I never really ever wanted in life or even thought about. But even with its, like, you know, kind of supernatural trappings and dungeon-crawling gameplay, the real standout part of this game was the fact that created this really believable small town setting with really unexpected things happening all the time and an insanely deep long story it took me a hundred hours to get through my first playthrough and i am (laughs) honestly i'm starting out my second playthrough a couple days ago so um it's it's just incredibly different and i played persona 3 a little bit um but didn't really get into it because it's it was very much more grind heavy less compelling to me from a story point of view but this is this the cast in this game the kind of everything coming together to really create this singular sort of sense of place i didn't get that anywhere else and then the last thing i would say is that having this on a handheld on the vita which has beautiful screen and amazing battery life and very easy for pick up and play um the game is just in, infinitely more approachable because this game literally takes place over about 320 days and um <laughs> It's that's every day you have to go to bed, do stuff, etc. So there's a lot of like you can break it up into much smaller chunks when you have a portable like that, where it's like I'll play one day of this game today, and then tomorrow I'll do two more, mm-hmm. and then I might do a dungeon on, on the weekend. So I think just the the way I played it, plus the richness and originality of the game itself, combined in a way that made it just amazing. Spencer I'm counterpoint. <laughs> I don't have a counterpoint other than, I don't know, Persona seems to be a game about teenagers who shoot themselves in the head or something. I really could not give a fuck. That sounds like the Persona fo- 3. They stopped doing That's that. That's like the Fox News uh, dissection of that game. <laughs> Virtual sex simulator? Anyway. Um, Baldur's Gate 2. Now, admittedly, I have a great deal of nostalgia for this game because I received it for Christmas in 2001. Also admitting, I have not played the HD remake, but I have played Baldur's Gate 1's <laughs> HD remake. And here's the thing. Baldur's Gate is an amazing, amazing series from a lot of standpoints. First of all, the art is gorgeous. Say what you will about the Infinity Engine, mm-hmm. but the way it handled sprite-based art is really phenomenal. It has some of the greatest settings that I've ever seen uh, in, a, in a game. On top of that, you have... Classic Dungeons and Dragons gameplay, but executed in such a fluid and playable way that it's on par with really any other RPG of the era, or really any other RPG to some extent, you know, excluding third-person ones. Really, to just put the cherry on the proverbial Sunday, it has a great story that you're very invested in, especially if you've ported a character from Baldur's Gate 1, which, like I said, they just released an HD remake of last year. So, it the the work on the restoration is fantastic. They fixed the netcode. You can actually play multiplayer now, which is awesome. Uh, they've added characters and content to it. At $25, which is its peak price... I consider that to be a steal. And, I i mean, it's a work of art, and the fact that people have been committed to restoring it in such a way, personally, I consider that beyond, uh, beyond comparison. I think that's a great game. I think that a lot of people should play that, technically, by our rules, excluded. Okay, so, 
That's a good point, because I agree with Baldur's Gate and 1 and 2 as far as being great games. Probably, even considering the history of Bioware, my favorite work that they've done. But, um, so the argument, so like Nick's selection of Persona, it's more of an ultimate edition, would I be correct in saying? Yeah. And then Baldur's Gate is more of just fixing things or updating it to be more palatable to a modern audience, right? Well, that and additionally it is it's also an ultimate edition. Okay. I mean they've they've added content and they've included all the DLC. So, yeah, it's it's basically an ultimate edition. So, not not to sidetrack cuz we can keep talking about those, but just to introduce another wrench into the cog would be Something like uh, Wind Waker, the Zelda Wind Waker HD remake that came out this year, which apparently, to my knowledge, fixed things like the travel time on the open world sailing that people complained about when it came out as far as being too too long between sailing to islands. It added, I believe, an orchestral score and just updated and changed a lot. So at what point do we consider an HD remake to be a whole new like entry and does Baldur's Gate count for that? And does Persona 4 Golden count as an ultimate edition? Like, where, where, where's the line that we draw for a game like that? If anything, we must maintain this rule to prevent you from placing two <laughs> Zeldas on our game of the oh, year list. Oh, God, I'm going to find a way. You know no, this. you won't. I'll kill you. <laughs> I got your back, Aaron. Thank you. Uh, I think it's important to note that an HG remake will never be... It can never be the same as, like, a sequel. Or even, you know, especially let alone a new IP. Um, you have to look at it in, the, in a historical context uh, in a way that you don't with like a new IP. Um, but that being said, there's a there's a, a wealth of difference between like the Silent Hill 2 and 3 ports to PS3, which were garbage by all accounts and half broken, versus like what they did with Wind Waker on the Wii U, where they created this whole suite of touchscreen support. They redid all the textures and up-res yeah. it, made it widescreen, um, changed the fundamental gameplay and the sailing mechanic. I had really hoped they would add those dungeons they cut at the last minute, but I guess they didn't. So, um, but I think that, I think we can appreciate the work that goes into those things in a way where, like, Wind Waker is one of those games I thought would be forgotten because it was, it was released on GameCube, which, like the Wii U, nobody really had bought at that point. Um, and of course that console didn't go on to do too well in the end. Um, it was often overlooked, you know, it was Ocarina of Time is always the 3D Zelda people talk about even to this day, but it was so fantastically different. It was very true to itself throughout. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, uh, it felt like it, it really spoke for itself and really def- like justified its, its look and feel and play style in a way that very yeah. few games have. It owned that style. So I think bringing that game back in this, in 2013 to a console that still hasn't sold very well. It's kind of a, a interesting statement because I think I, I know we shouldn't rate games based on what kind of statement they make, but I think it's worth considering. Like this is not Ocarina of Time remaster in HD. Like fans probably wanted more than anything. This is this is a remake of the fan favorite, but often overlooked Zelda, and it's apparently done exceedingly well. And uh, I think it says a lot about what Nintendo is trying to do right now. It is interesting that they chose to do Wind Waker as a remake and not. Like you're saying, Ocarina of Time, which they then ported to the, I guess, uh, smallest gap as far as hardware uh, disparity to the 3DS when they did the Ocarina of Time remake. So, Which was also pretty well done. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I totally agree with what you're saying with the state of the GameCube when the game came out and kind of how that almost seems as a unintentional commentary to put the Wind Waker remake on the Wii U. But... I I don't know. I think I think these HD remakes maybe not to debate our rules or say the rules of other game of the year awards, but it's perhaps selfish of us to think that because we'd already played these games or they were released prior that they're not valid for being current contenders for a game of the year like they're suddenly devalued because they were were already released in some form on a a prior platform what about all of the gamers that are 
playing Wind Waker for the first time. Yeah. I mean, there's 10-year-olds who were not technically alive. I, I think Wind Waker came out in 2003. Oh, God, stop making me feel so old. <laughs> so there weren't there weren't Nintendo age gamers who were alive when that game came out, so it's new to them. Does that devalue their their if that was their favorite game of the year, which you know they don't weigh on our game of the year awards for Silicon Sasquatch, but because they totally remastered the game and it's basically brand new to anybody who didn't play it before, um it's definitely different than like you're saying a silent hill port which is just making that prior code that prior game run on a different platform it's it's different than what they did with wind waker or other hd remakes of completely reworking the game not just to work on a new console but to fix things to adjust things so you know i'm not going to fight for the wind waker remake and that's why we're talking about it here for game of the year but there is a very big gray area between what is a valid game release and what does that mean to the larger gaming populace just because it came out before i don't think it should be excluded from a potential game of the year in the future yeah and i just want to add one thing that you mentioned for persona 4 which is that it's a series I never really understood until I got Persona 4 Golden on my Vita. And when I read up on the changes they made between the original PS2 release and the Vita release, they basically rewrote entirely how dungeons work yeah. and how the flow of the game works. And it would not have worked as a direct port on Vita from PS2. Like, they had to really change the flow of the game in a number of, you know, sort of subtle but significant ways to make that game as good as it was on that platform. And maybe... Maybe we consider it a like director's cut, right? Um, I guess an example I would give before we move move on is uh, a favorite series of mine, the Evil Dead series. So the first Evil Dead <laughs> is technically not canon. Evil Dead Two is, which Evil Dead Two is essentially a remake of the first Evil Dead that Sam Raimi did when he had a bigger budget. So Evil Dead Two to Army of Darkness are what count. The first Evil Dead just exists because he made that at the time. So if, say, Persona or Wind Waker or any HD remake that has substantial differences, if that is the director's cut version uh, of the game that they originally made, who are we to say that that's not a valid final release of that game content? And that is an argument I'm very willing to have uh if and when the Overhaul Games crew, the guys behind the Baldur's Gate remakes, get around to doing a remake of... Planescape? Planescape, yes. Yes. Absolutely, because I will fight tooth and nail <laughs> to get that on the top ten. I am excited for Tides of Numenera, so I'm hoping that they do a re-release of Planescape. I really hope they do, because it's an amazing game, and I want more people to play it. That was the game that got me to play American RPGs. Yeah. I I will I will pay infinity dollars for a Planescape remake. Honestly, I will just keep like once yearly firing up Planescape uh and adding mods to it to make it functional. Yeah. We should just do a live stream of that game. Just like start I'm on board. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. You heard it here first. <laughs> God, that game is so good. It's really good. Um speaking of really good games, because I know we're running out of time here. Yeah. Just want to put in a quick word for my other game that I would have loved to nominate this year, but it came out last year, and I failed to play it. Um, so it didn't make last year's list either, but that's Zero Escape uh, Virtue's Last Reward, which is the sequel to 999, nine hours, nine persons, nine doors, or whatever the <laughs> hell it's called. I don't know. It's Japanese <laughs> as hell. Um, but it did some... It, it's just a fascinating game to play, because there, there are so few games that do branching narrative in a way that is without giving anything away, like actually a part of the gameplay. Like the game not only expects that you will take different routes and try different things to see how the narrative changes, but requires you to without really explaining why until it becomes pertinent. Okay. So is that the elevator pitch? So I'm someone who has never seen this game. Like how are you going to convince me to play it? Um, couple of points. Uh, really interesting kind of uh, psychological and philosophical story behind this game. Like every action you choose is, has pretty dire consequences and it, um, it requires, it really kind of speaks right to the player, not to the character that the player is using. 
as like, oh, this is like your decision in this case. Well, these people are going to die as a result of that. You're a monster. Um, it, it, it has a very kind of unflinching and surprisingly mature story for one that's steeped in, you know, kind of traditional anime sci-fi tropes. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gets beyond them to the point where it has a very resonant and uh, unexpected story. And the other thing I'd say is that this is something that couldn't be done in any other medium. It had to be a game for it to work. And once you've reached the end of its story, and especially if you've played uh, the game before at 999, um, the investment completely pays off. It's it's an experience you won't get in anywhere else ever, at least until other people start making games like this. And it's uh, it's really cool uh, seeing how it unfolds. Was Zero Escape also on the handhelds? Was it a 3DS or Vita title? Zero Escape, uh, Virtue's Last Reward, is on Vita and 3DS. I played it on 3DS first, but then it was free on PS Plus, okay. so I would probably play it on Vita if you have a Vita, but um, 3DS version is fine, too. So is it an experience, just because you mentioned it, is it an experience that would it only works on handhelds, or what is it, like, what's unique to the experience that only works on this medium? Um, well, there are a couple things that only could be done on the handheld, and I never, actually, 999 could not be done on anything other than the DS for reasons uh, that are pertinent to the plot. Um, Virtue's Last Reward, since it was on Vita, doesn't have any of that, but um, I still think that it feels like, and it effectively is a visual novel, so I think playing on a big screen would kind of disrupt the feel of that, mm-hmm. and having it on a handheld where it's like a book you're reading, you know, like, you get to, you know, like when you're reading a really good novel and something crazy happens and you like kind of like look up on the page and you're like, holy shit, this just happened. And like, there's somebody over like ordering coffee at the counter at the cafe you're at and like, wait, this person doesn't know what this happened. I need to tell them. But then it'd be like, no, they think I'm crazy for saying this. Maybe I have a very depressing one of those. I get, I get that. Um, or you're looking at your Kindle and then you're like distracted by something on television. And yeah, you may not be in a cafe, basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like you, you turn over to like your <laughs> your friend or your roommate or something. And you're like, holy shit, this thing just happened, but I can't tell you because I want you to read or play this thing for yourself. Uh, this game is full of those moments, and um, I think the fact that it is on a handheld makes it a much more personal experience. I think that's you know true for most phone games as well. Anything that's going for that really immersive feel. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. So then, I guess we are left with the last game on this list, which is Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. The most 80s game available in 2013. Honestly, I, I'm kind of bummed out that it's ineligible, but I understand that it's kind of not worth Well, it's up. not technically ineligible, right? Because it's standalone. It's standalone... I think it'd be a hard sell to... Okay, sell uh, me... Well, really, to Tyler and Doug. Sell me and the audience on why this game is potential Game of the Year material, Spencer. All right. Imagine Far Cry 3, except it's not far up its own ass, (laughs) and it's like late 80s cyberpunk. That's the elevator pitch right there. It's amazing. Honestly, I consider uh, Blood Dragon to be the game that Far Cry 3 should have been from the... Like, from the get-go. So you wanted Far Cry 3 to be, like, all parody, self-referential parody. Right. Like Saints Row. Basically, like... Yeah. Effectively. Because, you know, I played Far Cry 3, and it's like this guy going, oh, what am I becoming? (laughs) And then I run through stabbing motherfuckers through their back over and over, and it's like, this character has no remorse. I don't care what he's saying in dialogue, because the way I'm playing him, he is clearly a sociopath. It is hard to take, like, a bro dude wearing a polo seriously with his journey from frat guy to, uh, like, white messiah of the island people. (laughs) God. Yeah. Oh, the fucking white messiah thing. But we did put it on our game of the year list. (laughs) I think it's a good point, though, especially when you look at, like, how Spec Ops the line successfully, I think, bridged that gap. Yeah. And showed a person becoming a monster. But that was was much more serious than Far Cry 3 was. And Far Cry 3 is... Well, the Far Cry series has always been about really bizarre, emergent things that happen that are funny. Um... So that does not fit with a very self-righteous message. So it's far like Blood Dragon you're saying is the ultimate version of the kind of undertone sarcasm humor they've had in the other games, but actually just going full throttle with it. It absolutely is. And, you know, some people say, oh, well, it it's too much that. But, you know, uh, Saints Row 4 was arguably it, too, too much in too self-aware of itself. And I think 
I think Blood Dragon is the perfect amount. It's very hammy and very silly and very much calls on a bunch of old tropes that maybe kids these days won't even get. <laughs> I would say so. But it's wonderful. It's very much worth playing. And as long as you've got a taste for that type of ridiculous over-the-top humor, it, I mean, it's it's like halfway between... I don't know, Dane Cook and Tim and Eric, and it it's perfect. It works perfectly for what they're trying to do. I think that's do. a great example, and that should have been a box quote. It's halfway between <laughs> Dane Cook and Tim and Eric, which uh, I think to add... That would alienate like 98% of people that, right there. That's but. the problem, though. I think with Blood Dragon is unless you had grown up and had watched movies like, just a bad example, but a basic one, Terminator and other just... Like Van Damme, Hackers, level eight. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. <laughs> if you hadn't seen those movies or had grown up in the eighties or were cognizant Universal enough Soldier. in the eighties, like say you are that asshole. This is Universal who was Soldier, born in nineteen ninety-five, who is now eighteen because you're a piece of shit. God, like, stop reminding like, <laughs> me. Go home, Chad. Go the fuck home, you son of a bitch. Unless you're that guy, like we grew up with that, or we at least were close enough to. You the mean our target demo? Have seen and yeah, we had to experience that. So that Blood Dragon was made by a team of people who are in that same mindset as us. Which, if you weren't there, you're just going to look at that like, oh, that's weird and old, and I don't get it because I'm listening to like Arcade Fire and I don't know whatever you're doing these days. Which I like Arcade Fire, so I'm sorry for making that reference but um swear to god if you're, yeah your your snapchat or uh is that snapchat is that the thing yeah i'm, I'm gonna start calling chad. it snapchad but go on snapchad kroger you're doing nickelback <laughs> snapchats <laughs> uh, so if you're uh, doing yeah. snapchat you probably won't understand the references in blood dragon which i think is its limiting factor for game of the year is you have to be a certain age range to get it unlike a normal piece of entertainment that just as far as Game of the Years goes, normal, is wide-ranging enough to not have to require this pre-knowledge to just enjoy it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to remember going to Laser Tag and seeing the intro videos they would right. show and thinking, holy shit, I want to do that. I want to shoot people on a grid in 3D. Because that's what Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon is. Not not to go off on a, a slight tangent, but because you mentioned laser tag, my like one of my fondest memories <laughs> of the 90s was going to laser tag at a birthday party and at that birthday party having an issue of EGM, oh my God. Electronic Gaming Monthly, which that was the issue that gave both Metal Gear Solid 1 and Ocarina of Time a 10 out of 10 score. <laughs> which was valid. And, and me, me reading that, and getting so fucking pumped before we went into laser tag <laughs> and just eating pizza and drinking root beer and then going to that laser tag room and just slaughtering everybody because I was so pumped that those games got the perfect scores. <laughs> so that that is basically the mindset you have to be in to play Blood Dragon. I think I speak for Aaron and myself when I say that getting excited about video games is pretty much the high point of our lives. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Oh, God, I miss laser tag. Anyway. <laughs> Dude, I live down the street from a laser tag place in Austin. You don't even know. As far as uh, Blood Dragon goes, yeah, with the references they were throwing out there and having... I mean, the, the actual assault rifle in the game looks like a laser tag rifle and sounds like a laser tag rifle. Yeah, it's astonishing. And the RoboCop gun, right? And there's a button to flip people off with your <laughs> cyber arm. Oh. So. If you if you mash it, you flip them off with both your eyes. But I'm so uh, glad you figured that out because I didn't. Uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Uh, basically, they announced it on April Fools, and I was so afraid that it was a joke because yeah. I wanted to play it so badly. And now that I have, it's it's wonderful. It's it's stupid and it's asinine and it's self aware in a distracting way, and it pulls on references that a lot of gamers these days aren't going to get. And I don't care. I would love to have it on our list. And if I could replace it in the place of Far Cry 3 last year, I would do it. So game of the year 1987? Effectively, yes. <laughs> Look, it's the grim future of 2007. <laughs> what's, 
your name? Isn't it Rex something or Rex it... Power Colt? Yeah, <laughs> Rex Power Colt. One hundred percent true. It was the game they would have made in the eighties if Ubisoft was making shooters at the time. Yeah, that's that's basically. I'm pretty it. sure it's a, it's a game that Michael Bean had always wanted to be in in the eighties, <laughs> and finally, <laughs> it came true. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a lot of games that are kind of messed up, but we all love. That is absolutely true. Look forward to our upcoming Game of the Year podcast, because that is going to be... A shit show. A sh- you beat me to it. I was going to say exactly that. Yep. Sorry. Or, know, but it, for our German-speaking audience, Scheiße Show is... Don't Google that. No. No, okay. no, no. Let's, let's, let's just go with Shit Storm, which is actually where the Germans had to import. That's oh. the sequel to Bone Storm, right? Which I think that's what Blitzkrieg means, right? Bone saw is ready. That's a Spider-Man reference. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm going balls in, man. I don't even uh, fucking know anymore. Rest in peace, anyway. Randy Savage. <laughs> <laughs> rest in peace, indeed. Anyway, yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, tune in for, as I mentioned, our game of the year, which will be as contentious as you've ever heard us. Yeah. Quick, quick note about that before we sign off here. Uh, our, while we're recording next weekend, we're going to kind of post the discussion in full until the end of our Game of the Year feature, just so we don't spoil anything for those people who actually are giving a shit about this whole thing. So we're beginning our feature on December 23rd, that's Monday, and concluding it on December 27th, that Friday. You can look for our podcast probably about them. Okay. And then we'll just keep that secret from you for two weeks, and we'll just laugh in your faces when you ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we typically do anyway. That's how we operate. This is why we have so many fans. <clears throat> Thank you, the thank you, mom, for listening to this podcast. <laughs> thank you to all our moms except my mom. I don't think <laughs> listens to Buzzcock. Neither is she my lis- mom. She listens to Memory Card, and she doesn't listen to Aww. the regular podcast. That's touching. But, That's nice. Yeah, well, mom, like me on Facebook. <laughs> mom, unfriend me on Facebook. I'm just going to offend you. <laughs> hashtag somewhere in there is a hashtag <laughs> all right well, anyway good night anyway, yeah good night to everybody except people named chad thank you yeah, fuck you chad <laughs> goodbye <laughs>